Now, uh, before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, let me put it into context. Uh, as you know, today is December 7th, and 73 years ago today, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And uh, it says, remember Pearl Harbor. A lot of folks, young folks may not know about Pearl Harbor, maybe haven't studied it. Um, a lot of you do know that my godfather, who passed away this year, uh, he was the, old, the highest ranking survivor of the attack on Pearl Harbor before he died. He was a lieutenant on the USS Cass, and his ship was sunk. He pulled his shipmates out of the water. They were dead. The harbor was on fire. He uh, was also the oldest uh, living, he was the oldest alumni, living alumni of the United States Naval Academy, class of 37. Retired as a rear admiral. A neat man, bigger than life. Always an optimist, eternal optimist. I, I share with you a story about when I went to talk to him during the election and I was whining and he sat me down and he just basically said, you know, Rob, you, you gotta just give it a rest, basically. He said, Rob, I was 16 years old in the Great Depression. You don't know tough. He said, had I not gotten an appointment to the Naval Academy, I would have never have gotten a college degree. He said, when I graduated, I was stationed in Pearl Harbor as a lieutenant on December 7th, 1941. He says, you don't know this, but we had the 22nd largest military on the face of the earth. See, after World War I, America was tired of wars, and so we'd become an isolationist nation, and we hadn't built up our military. And he, and he said, you know, even when, when Hitler went into the Sudetenland and fascism was rolling through Europe and then they took over Poland with the Blitzkrieg and after Dunkirk and, and the remaining French forces and English forces you know, vacated and got back to the islands of Great Britain, he said all of Europe was just absolutely inundated with fascist Nazis and, uh, and the world was imploding. He said, we were on a Lend-Lease program. We still wouldn't engage in the war. Roosevelt would send over you know, military supplies, but we, we weren't engaged in the war. He said, but on December 7th, 1941, on a quiet morning in Pearl Harbor, he says, it was a beautiful day. He said, the Japanese planes came in. He says, I'll never forget it. He said, they, they bombed half our Pacific fleet. Our, our aircraft carriers were out on maneuvers, and they sank all of our battleships for the most part and damaged the, the remainers, remaining ships. To this day, the USS Arizona is still at the bottom of Pearl Harbor. And, and the next day, my godfather said, we took on a two-fronted war against two fascist nations that had been gearing for war. They were war machines, unequaled in the history of the world. He said the lines for folks volunteering for the war were around, around the block in every city in America. And as we undertook this war and people signed up to fight, he said, we, we put out the fires and we lifted that fleet from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, took on a two-fronted war. We brought both of those fascist nations to their knees. As a matter of fact, we even took that same fleet that they sunk, raised it from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, refitted it and floated it in for the surrender of the Japanese in Tokyo Harbor. He said, we were occupiers, Rob. We weren't, excuse me, he said, we were liberators, not occupiers. We stayed in those nations long enough to establish representative forms of government in both. And when we left, we only asked for enough ground to bury our dead. And we came back to the United States. We cut federal spending by 75% and started the greatest industrial revolution in the history of the world. And he was an eternal optimist. He said, America's greatest days are ahead of it. And this is a man who endured the, the depression. And here we are today whining about our circumstances. When we talk about eschatology, the study of the end times, every generation thinks that Christ is going to come any minute, and, and we, love to, we love to push forward prophecy as though the rapture is going to happen tomorrow, and, and you know, what can I do because all these world events have, have been orchestrated, and I'm, I'm fighting again. No, no. They, can you imagine Pearl Harbor being on fire and all of Europe being consumed by fascists in all of Asia? 
Six million Jews being gassed and then incinerated. 50 million people dying in World War II. I would think that that would be enough motivation to say the end of the world is near. But that generation said no. Fought diligently and there was an enormous revival. What occurred was this this expanse of America to, to a superpower never equaled in the history of the world. 238 years we've been under one article of incorporation, our Declaration of Independence, our birth certificate. And here we are today, we're watching these freedoms erode around us and there's apathy in the body of Christ. 85 million evangelical Christians and and 25% of them even bothered to vote. This last election was pathetic. Pathetic. And we look at this and we think, what is our role? We've We've taken our eschatology and our prophetic understanding of the word and it's paralyzed us to the point where we don't do anything. One of, one of the things I hated during the race is people come and go, I'm praying God's will for the election. I'm sorry, what kind of a prayer is that? His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, with or without you. What you're saying is, I just don't want to do anything, so I'm just going to recite something. Now, there's power in prayer, but my question is, what are you praying? What, what do you mean God's will? Are you in it or out of it? Are you praying that I'd be in it or out of it? What, what do you mean you're praying God's will? What is, what is your point? Is this your excuse for dismissal of your responsibilities? To, to, as Jesus said in Luke 19, occupy until he comes? We, we are the instruments of righteousness on the earth. We're the salt and the light of the earth. He commands us to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. That's, that, is, that is a governmental calling. And we look at that and we go, well, I don't do politics. You know why? Because you're like this. And to do this, you have to know more. And you have to know in what you believe so that you're not taken away from the anchor of your soul, which is Christ. You have to learn how to navigate these worlds, but you'd rather do this. And, and we, don't, we, 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 have, we have no effect in the culture around us. And the reason why this passage of scripture is so important as we get ready to engage in it is this. Eschatology is a study of the end times. Every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability. I know there are folks in here post-trib, post-millennial. I know there's folks who are pre-trib, pre-millennial. My professor in seminary was pan-trib, pan-millennial. I said, what is that? He goes, it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> and it's amazing how we divide over such stupid issues. The Bible says endeavor to keep the union of the spirit and the bond of peace, but we would divide over those type of issues. When I, I haven't met one scholar who's gotten it right, even my pastor, Chuck Smith, believed he'd witnessed the rapture in his lifetime, and he died before the rapture. The Apostle Paul would go on in 1 Thessalonians 5 to declare that. Romans 13, I have a feeling that Paul even expected the rapture in his time. And, and some of you think you got it down. But I would look at your life and it says, bear fruit in accordance with repentance. I'd look at your life and say, how active are you in the process? Does your eschatology paralyze you? Our knowledge of the past shouldn't paralyze our responsibility of the present. I mean... When I said every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability, our founding fathers had a, a reformed view of eschatology, and they believed that they had to usher in Christ's coming by establishing his kingdom on the earth. So what did they do? They set up institutes of higher learning, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, all calculated to educate pastors to promulgate the gospel across the, the country. They had the New England Primer, which was the, the number one textbook in America until the 1930s. It was all about Christ. According to the Northwest Ordinance, one of our founding documents in the history of the United States, you couldn't get public funding in a school unless you taught the Bible in the school. That's the Northwest Ordinance. Read it. 
probably haven't. It was fascinating. And, and, and they were all educated under the Great Awakening under George Whitfield. All of our founding fathers were educated under George Whitfield, who had started the Great Awakening in England, came over to the United States, either nine or 13 different trips that he took to the United States. He would preach in open theater, open fields with 30,000 people attending. And Benjamin Franklin didn't believe it, so he attended one of them, walked the circumference of the audience, and realized that it was legitimate. And he, he, had, he established a friendship with George Whitfield. And, and that foundation of the gospel influenced not only Benjamin Franklin, our founding fathers, but influenced uh, uh, William Wilberforce in England. Hannah and, and William, her, her, his, his aunt and his uncle, were deeply influenced by George Whitfield, friends of the family. John Newton, who was a previous slave trader, who wrote Amazing Grace, would, would be the pastor for young, young uh, William Wilberforce. He would go on to abolish slavery in, in the British Empire 30 years before America would even touch it. Because one man pushed the gospel forward. And you, and you look at William Wilberforce. This is a man that was raised in Hull, England, which was a seaport. There were four major seaports in England. Three of them plied the trade of slavery. Only one did, and that was Hull. So he didn't grow up seeing slavery or the trade of slavery. But his grandfather was the mayor of the city and was also a council member. He grew up in politics. Changed the name from Wilberforce, which means uh, you know, servant, to William Wilberforce, which is what they wanted for a political name. His parents were pseudo-churchgoers, and there wasn't much of a spiritual emphasis in his life, but his father died when he was young, his 14-year-old sister died, his mother became ill, and they shipped him off into Wimbledon to a wealthy family, which was his aunt and uncle, Hannah and William Wilberforce. When he went to go live with them, what was fascinating is George Whitfield had such an influence in the Methodists with Wesley, Charles Wesley and his brother. He would, he would sit under the teaching of John Newton, and he would come to understand this and be so empowered by it. The nation had been deeply influenced by the teachings of Christ that it affected. And then he comes back to Hall when his family realizes he's getting all religious. They bring him back and they, they teach him in, in the world of, of politics and he enters into parliament and he serves with William Pitt Jr. And the two of them together, when he has this crisis of faith, wondering, am I supposed to be in the parliament or am I supposed to be in the clergy? It was John Newton who said, you're gonna be in the ministry in parliament. That was unheard of back then. But this was the ideals of Whitfield that had been taught and all of a sudden Wilberforce enters in and applies Christian principles into the government that revolutionizes the world and ends slavery in the British Empire. We, do, we don't even study him anymore. You need to read Eric Metaxas' book, uh, Amazing Grace, the study of William Wilberforce's life. Men, every, every Friday morning, 6.30, I've been doing the longest ministry I've been a part of for 14 years. I have a men's study, 6.30 every Friday morning. You're welcome to come. Just get the book and come join us. And we look at this and we see this, this is the effect on, on how the world is transformed. And our founding fathers, when they had this, this reformed view of eschatology, it came with an asset. The asset was it, it transformed the landscape. It, it, was, it was at the Constitutional Convention that they couldn't, they couldn't figure out nine of the states had 50% of the population and four of the states had 50% of the population. And the four states felt as though they should have more influence because they had the greater population than the other nine states. And they were at odds with each other and the whole constitution was gonna dissolve. And it was Benjamin Franklin, friends with, with uh, George Whitfield, who said, I move that we take three days of fasting and prayer and then convene together and see if God would illuminate our minds as to what to do. And that's where they came up with this concept of a bicameral legislature. The lower house and the upper house, the lower house based on the population, that's how many representatives you get. In the upper house, everyone gets two senators. Brilliant! 
the, major, the, the main source, if you look at all the founding fathers of the, of the sources they quote, the Bible itself. All of that was an influence of men and women engaging in the public arena with biblical principles based on their eschatology. Now, the liability of the eschatology of our founding fathers was that the churches, they worship knowledge. And knowledge puffeth up, and the churches became cold and boring, and people didn't want anything to do with it. And, and their, their music was... Now, the hymns were great. Don't get me wrong. I believe they're sanctified. I believe that they're amazing works. Cowper's was a man who was insane, wrote most of the, the hymns people loved to sing. That guy was on the brink of insanity. He worked with John Newton to write most of these. And, and then all of a sudden, here in, in America, the churches became so dull and boring that, that kids just started to check out. They, they, there, was, there was no influence on the, on the emotional, the emotive aspect of it. They, they didn't see the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They, they weren't waiting on God and tearing. And, and all of a sudden, you had this, uh, the, these, these kids moving out. And then, then you had the British invasion with music. When, when the churches wouldn't allow syncopated rhythms, no drums, no electric guitars. We don't do that. That's evil. And all of a sudden, the kids just, the British invasion comes and, and all their hearts and minds are stolen and they're out there worshiping the Beatles and the Stones and everything else, and, and, and we just lose an entire generation of kids. And, and, and they go for self-realization and Eastern religions, and they're all, you know, druggies, and that's the 60s, and the sexual revolution. And I'm looking around the room, and some of you have participated in that, obviously. <laughs> and the Calvary chapels were birthed out of that in 1966. It was Kay Smith who just saw the sea of humanity, these kids with long hair, and they'd just gone through the, the sexual revolution, the drugs, and they were just disillusioned and brokenhearted. And she had a burden for them, and, and she and Chuck just began to minister to them. And you know what they did? They taught the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Es- I mean, um, exegetical teaching, which is what they left the church, but you know how they brought them in? Music. The Maranatha music. And for those of you going, the hymns are absolutely sanctified and we only need hymns. Well, I got news for you. This church was birthed out of the absence of hymns. And, and every generation has this, you know, desire for music. Well, it's of the devil. Well, okay. Calvary chapels have experienced a 10,000% growth since 1966. Four of the 10 largest churches in America are Calvary chapels. 1,500 churches around the world. The fastest missionary explosion of any Protestant denomination in the world. And the lion's share of those 1,500 churches are right here in California. And in 1966, when Chuck and Kay started doing that, guess who was governor of the state of California? Reagan. We were conservative. And we've been doing this for 60 years, teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Our eschatology is pre-trib, pre-millennial. We're waiting for the rapture any minute, man. It's about evangelism. We've got to get these people saved. And we've had expansive growth. But now we've been here for 60 years, and, and Jesus hasn't returned. And what has happened since we've abdicated our responsibility of putting Christ's influence in the government? We don't do politics, man. We're about evangelism. What's happened? 66, California's conservative. Here we are, 2014. Number one abortion provider in the country. The author of the transgender bathroom bill and no-fault divorce. What's the disconnect? Man, we just do the gospel. Pastor Brett and I were sitting with a group of pastors this past week. Two school board candidates on a school board that has five sitting school board members. In the history of the Conejo Unified School District, 60 school board members have been elected. Of the 60, only three weren't endorsed by the California Teachers Association, the largest public union in California. The CTA and the SCIU have donated $300 million in the last 10 years to political campaigns. That's two-thirds of all political donations. And they've done it to only one party, the Democratic Party. If you don't have their endorsement, you don't win. 
three school board candidates out of 60 were not endorsed by the CTA. So we got together and we said, how do we get somebody elected who hasn't been endorsed by the CTA? We had one sitting on there, Mike Dunn. The other four were all endorsed by the CTA. And this church got together. A monumental Herculean effort. And today, John Anderson sits on that board two of five. And as we're sitting with these pastors telling them how the church got involved and got a school board candidate elected and we've got another election coming up, we said, we need you guys to get together and unify and we've got to push this ball forward. It was like we were talking to a room full of stones. They wouldn't even look at us. Just... And we said, do you understand? Right now, because of the transgender bathroom bill in California, a self-diagnosed student, not by a doctor, but just self-diagnosed, however they're feeling on the course of that day, can enter any bathroom they want. A male can go in a female bathroom. We, we had a case earlier. One of the, one of the uh, parents came forward to me and said, my daughter was over at Sequoia Middle School, and, and this boy came in and said, I, you know, and scared my daughter to death. She was, she was shivering in the bathroom, scared to death. Invoking his right. We have five students that have agreed to separate facilities, but there's probably a handful of parents that they're going to fight it. And they're going to demand that their child can go in any bathroom they want. And I'm looking at these pastors saying, you're telling me that you don't want to fight to just go and have three out of the five. Just, just, the majority. You see how simple that was? Just, and, and, What's the disconnect? And how can you tell me, as we get ready to study prophecy, how can you tell me that you are justified in your behavior based on the fact that you just simply know what the end has? You're going to hasten that? You're going to just stand back and allow it to invade? Jesus said in Luke 19, occupy until I come. So this is what we're up against. And I, I, I have that enormous opening before we stand for the reading of the word Lord because I wanted to prepare you. I'm not interested in apathy. Today as we study this passage of scripture that is the backbone of prophecy in the scriptures and it culminates of 2,600 years of world history, I want you to be prepared on how it is supposed to be applied in our lives. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 24 Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. And Arioch quickly, <laughs> because he knew all his buddies were going to get killed, Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and thus to him, and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, and by the way, Daniel always referred to himself as Daniel, but if the king said Belteshazzar, he'd say that's what he called me. That was his Chaldean name. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But, and I love this, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. You know how he came to know that secret? He prayed. Just thought I'd add that. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while, you, while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. So Daniel goes like this. He says, not only am I going to tell you your dream, 
Not only am I going to tell the interpretation of the dream, I'm going to tell you what you were thinking about before you dreamed. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar going, wow, this is trippy. What will come to pass after this? And he will reveal the secrets that he's made known to you. What will be? Verse 30, but as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. And by the way, in the Aramaic, this great image means something that you can't even fathom. There isn't even words to describe it. There isn't a a director in Hollywood who could put together. This is so fascinating, it it would cause anyone to trip. This kept him awake for weeks on end. He says, uh, behold, a great image. The great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. Verse 32, this image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs. By the way, how many thighs do you have? Two. Keep that in mind. Thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so there was no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Uh, A stone not fashioned with human hands. This is Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. This is a picture. It fills all the earth. Verse, Verse 36. This is the dream. Now, I'm going to tell you the interpretation of it, Mr. Neb. You, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. Don't forget where your power comes from, strength and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar's like, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And you can imagine also going, Daniel, how are you in my head, man? You're living up there rent-free. So, verse 39. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and Nebuchadnezzar loves that, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, everyone say toes. Say it again, toes. Partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, meaning kind of... uh, parts of uh, tile from roofs. Um, Just as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, verse 42, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the gods of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out from the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, the dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief administrator, government position, by the way, over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. He got promoted in the government. 
Most of the Old Testament folks are government workers. Just thought I'd share that. Lord, we ask your blessing and insight in your word. I pray that you'd empower and strengthen and move your people. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Knowledge of the past shouldn't paralyze our responsibility of the present. I share that with you because the Apostle Paul, when it comes to eschatology and the study of the end times, he'd had, in the book of Acts, he had about three weeks to impart all the biblical knowledge he had to the church at Thessalonica before they ran him out of town and persecuted him. And when he was in Thessalonica, he said to those folks, and he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them and labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day shouldn't overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The apostle Paul is saying, look, you know the end. You know that if it's whatever your eschatology is, whether it's a rapture, whatever it is, or, or you're gonna go through the tribulation, whatever it is, you're not ignorant. I spent three weeks with you. I don't have to go into deep biblical prophecy. I don't have to do a series on it. I don't have to lay it all out so that you know every nook and cranny and you know if it's gonna be the EU or you know the, the monster from Jekyll Island, it's gonna be the federal reserve. It doesn't matter. Is it the monster, the beat, what is it? Creature. creature, creature from Jekyll Island. I always forget that. I read it, it's interesting. You know, it's, 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 it's uh, eight banking systems that dominate the Federal Reserve System. It was done in 1913 when uh, the, the Congress was out on vacation. They passed it through. They, they put together the Federal Reserve. The eight banking systems are run by 300 stockholders. The majority of them are not Americans. They're all European. Uh, it's so it makes it not federal, and we know there's no reserve. So, I mean, yeah. And, and, and it's, 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 it, it runs the money in the world. You have Chase Bank and you've got the Rothschilds and all of them are involved in this. And, and you look at it and you go, how do I control that? It's so big that you almost just are paralyzed and you can't do anything. And some folks love to focus on that and, and, and read everything there is to read about it and talk about this monster that's out there. Yeah, it's out there. But what are you doing here? It's one thing to sit there and complain and, and define what the problem is, but are you the solution? What are you doing it's so big that you can't even, it's so, we got to just get up to the enclave in Montana and get supplies and get a fence and, and get guns. And it, where is that in the Bible? We you know what we got to do is we got to run up the credit cards and, and just get up on the top of a mountain so we're closer to the rapture and we're going to be taken and then they're going to, where is that in the Bible? None of that is a proper response. And yeah, there are forces that are immense, and, and yes, there, there's kingdoms, and, but I got news for you. God works in the affairs of men. He has dictated 2,600 years of history. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar right now, I want you to know something. You're that head of gold in the picture over here. That's kind of trippy. I would, I would have a nightmare if I saw that. You're the head of gold. And when you hear Herodotus, who, who was a historian who came 70 years after the fall of Babylon, he walked around one temple that was three miles in circumference and it was made of entirely of gold. 22 tons of gold still existed when he walked through the remains of the Babylonian empire. It was a kingdom of gold and it was powerful. Nebuchadnezzar would decree one thing in a day and would get out to every vestige of that empire. He would change it the next day and it would be changed within a day. 
he, He was the head. He was completely in charge. It was Leon Wood who said Nebuchadnezzar was uniquely responsible for Babylon's attaining and maintaining empire status. After him, its power diminished rapidly. It was far more his kingdom than he was its king. The same was not true of any success, uh, succeeding em- empire. Uh, and and it, was, it was the largest kingdom in the civilized world. And it spread to the, the edges of, of, of the known world. And it was a great power, but it only lasted 70 years before it was destroyed. And so Daniel says, that's you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You're the greatest. No one after you is going to be even remotely close to what you bring. But he goes on to declare... In verse 39, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and a fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. So the Babylonian Empire, we're going to see with Darius, and Daniel will be present. And it's interesting because uh, Jewish historians will dictate that one prophet remained there and showed them the scroll that had prophesied of their arrival when Darius comes in. Hundreds of years before it even stepped foot. And then as the waters receded and they actually walked under the bridge of Babylon and invaded it, it was all dictated that that would be the case. And it would floor the mind of these leaders. And, and, and Daniel would be alive under the second reign of Darius. And this, the Medo-Persian Empire would overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And in the Medo-Persian Empire, that was what represents this chest of silver. Silver's weaker than gold. The Medo-Persian kings didn't possess the kind of control and power that Nebuchadnezzar possessed. And uh, they didn't have the kind of control. And, and so you'll see that with Darius as we get into the passage itself further on in the book of Daniel. Their reign was longer than Nebuchadnezzar's reign. They reigned from 539 BC to 330 BC. They weren't nearly as powerful and their grandeur didn't surpass that of Babylon's. They were followed by the Grecian empire. And that's where we see the belly and the thighs. The belly and the thighs. The, the, the Grecian empire was of bronze. And, and Greece reigned from 330 BC to 65 BC. The kingdom of bronze would rule over all the earth, which is fascinating because uh, the, the, the known world at the time would be conquered by Alexander the Great. And he was, he was in his early 30s when he had conquered all the world. And, and, it's, and it was said of him in history that when he had conquered all of the known world, there was no one left to conquer. And, the, and it says that he wept. He's like, man, there's no more opponents. And he's like, I've, got, I've done it all. I mean, I've gotten all the Oscars, I've gotten all the Grammys, and I've gotten all the money, and I've conquered Wall Street, and there's nothing left. And what is it, what is it profit a man to gain the world, yet lose his soul? And he wept. And Alexander the Great weeps, and at 30, he's killed. In his 30s, he's killed. And from that come four generals that rise to take over the kingdom, but only two succeed, and these are the two thighs. And, and one is the Seleucid uh, dynasty and the others a Ptolemaic dynasty, and these these two generals move forward to split this kingdom in two. One is in Egypt, the other is in Syria, and they're bronze. You know, you look at the the the, the Greek world and the language spread throughout all the known world, which is fascinating because that 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 formulated the gospel being spread to the known world because they were under a common language as a result of Alexander the Great. Everyone knew Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. Some of you are going, well, I don't really fathom that. Let me share with you. Uh, yesterday, I think it was, or the day before yesterday, I had coffee with Pastor Steve Larson, who used to be the pastor of the bridge. He's now a missionary in China. This will blow your mind. He is being paid, not a lot, but he's being paid by the Chinese communist government. 
to teach <laughs> biblical principles of marriage in a public library to communist Chinese students. We can't even do that in America. And, 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 and I said, how are you doing the language? He says, you know, every province has its own language. Every province has its own language, but the, the unifying language is Mandarin. He says, Mao was guilty of mass murder and, and atrocities unparalleled in the history of the world. But if we were to give him credit for anything, it's that the language is now permeated. So if you learn Mandarin, you can evangelize uh, uh, billions of people. And so I would say, I'd encourage folks to learn Mandarin. I'm not kidding. And, and we, we talk about, you know, one world currency and the, you know, European Economic Union, that's the ten toes, and this is where the Antichrist is coming. You know what? All the Christians in China, and they're, by the way, they're sending more missionaries than we do from America. They're going into Syria. They're going into Yemen. They're going into Iran. Because the, the Chinese Christians have no... There's, there's no restrictions on their passports in the 1040 window, longitude and latitude, where the Arab world consists. They're going in there, they're opening up stores, they're opening up restaurants, and they're, they're preaching the gospel and having house churches. And they, they could care less pre-trib, pre-millennial, post-trib, post-millennial. They don't even know how to spell millennial. They could care less. They're, they're absolutely transforming the government. The, the government wants to do business with Christians because they don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't take bribes. And in our culture, we, we sec segment our Christianity and we don't engage in politics. There, they're transforming the entirety of their nation and bringing the gospel into nations that desperately need it. While we are just struggling even to send a missionary, let alone support Steve. And so you, you see this language, this, this Koine Greek through Alexander the Great and these two empires of, of this, this bronze segment of the thighs. But then you go down to the base of it and, and, and one of the things interesting is it was the Greeks that, that created the phalanx by bronze, you know, where they would just, and they would just march in and dominate everyone. When they took on the Persians, the Persians had turbans and linen. They just wiped right through them. Just, and and, and uh, they, they grew formidable. But then after the Greeks came the Roman Empire. The, the Romans just took the Greek gods, just changed their names. Aphrodite and, and Bacchus, and they just changed all the gods' names and they just furthered it. And through this Roman Empire, this is where you see iron. And iron was the strongest metal known at the time of Daniel's writing. And, and the, the Romans, Leopold states that the Roman legions were noted for their ability to crush all resistance with a, an iron heel. So the phalanx designed by the Greeks was just formulated and, and, and perfected by the Romans and they called it the legion and they would just they'd call the order and the shields would come down and they just move in and wipe out everybody and and the Roman empire expanded to every vestige of the known world it went into India to the northern reaches of of Europe all the way over to the British Isles and deep into Africa they were everywhere and if you wanted to study theology early on you had to know Greek and you had to know Latin even today if you want to do an in-depth study of the scriptures you need to know Greek to some capacity Every theological student has to study Greek because this is, this is how the gospel was, was disseminated throughout the known world. And it was a result of the Roman legions. But what happens in this last portion is we've gone through each of these. You've gone through the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And all those have passed. 
But they hadn't passed when Daniel had given the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, so he's floored. That's why critics struggle over this, because it's a dictation of 2,600 years of history that hadn't happened when Daniel wrote it. And now we get down to the bottom, iron and clay. Iron and clay are this consistency of modern powers. And it goes with the toes. When I had you guys repeat twice the word toes, toes is this concept of, of, of 10 nations, a conglomerate coming together to, to reinvigorate the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire never dissolved. It, it just fell from within. It was never conquered. And this idea of these 10 toes, these 10 nations rising up from the base of that and, and creating this conglomerate. Daniel 7 will make it real clear as we get into it. And the, the vision has implications to the beast with 10 horns in Revelation, a coming world leader of an antichrist. This is a pre-trib, pre-millennial view. And, and it's the revival of the Holy Roman Empire or the Roman Empire. A lot of people think it's the European Economic Union. 27 countries coming together with over 500 million people. That's 200 million more than the United States with a gross domestic product of $14 trillion. We think it's got to be that. They have a common security and a defense alliance. And uh, we, we think, especially with you know, the Federal Reserve being run by 300 sh- shareholders, most of them European, and people are saying, well, America's not in prophecy. Neither is China. And, and if you've got prophecy figured out and you know what it's going to be and you're just going to give up because everybody's going to control it, you've lost perspective. And you don't understand your responsibility. It was Jesus who said in Luke 19, he says, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Sound familiar? Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10, ten minas, and said to them, do business until I come, or occupy until I come. But his citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man reign over us. Jesus wants us to occupy until he returns. The apostle Paul thought of Christ's return as eminent. He wrote in Romans 13, and do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep, out of our apathy. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Apostle Paul was saying, be sober and vigilant. Be active. Jesus says, occupy until I come. Daniel would declare in Daniel 9, 27, he says, in the end, there's going to be desolation and war. Some of you are going, well, that's going to happen in the end times. There's going to be desolation and war, and that's going to be the Antichrist, and we're on the verge of that. Let me just share with you. In the last 2,600 years, for every 13 years of war, there's been one year of peace. We've been in the midst of desolation and war. And don't give me that when 50 million people died in World War II, and 6 million Jews were gassed and incinerated, and you're telling me I got news for you. On December 7th, 1941, they thought it was the end of the world. But they rolled their sleeves up and they lifted that fleet from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and they went to work. There was no apathy in the nation and you're sitting in a nation that was defended by those men and women. And you've been given this blessing of freedom and liberty and the apathy is is unconscionable, not in this fellowship, but in the nation itself. And somehow it's justified by your eschatological view of the world. And somehow the monster is just too big. The last time I checked, my God holds the heavens in the span of his hand. 
There's no weapon fashioned against you that will stand. The realization that just you can move one school board member and save the kids in our community, and somehow that paralyzes a room of pastors. I don't get it. And I look at this and I think to myself, God is commanding that we rise up. You can look at the world and just say it's going to hell in a handbag and go run up your credit card and be apathetic and call it a day. But I got news for you. You're not operating in the context of scripture and that's not why God gave you an understanding of the end times. You should be more diligent now than you've ever been. We of all people in the history of the world have more understanding of the scriptures than any generation that's gone before us. We should be more diligent and empowered than any nation that's gone before us. Eschatology is not an excuse for laziness. I'm burdened by that. That's probably why I am not an expert in eschatology. I get frustrated. I get frustrated when people come up to me and go, you know, and, and they, they just give you this endless, and it's usually the people that do nothing in the church. They're not, they're not in the children's ministry. They don't, they don't push a broom. They don't do anything. And they, they're picking fly poop out of pepper. They're just nitpicking everything. Just, and and I, I don't, just save it. Write me a letter and, and put your name on it. That way I know not to read it. I, I bear fruit in accordance with repentance. Do something. Be diligent to find yourself occupied until he comes. Just that's all you just You can't do that? You can't get off your barca lounger and go vote? The kids in the community aren't important to you? You don't do politics? Really? Where is that in scripture? 1966, 2014. You saw the decline while the church was preaching the gospel. I just do the gospel, man. What does that mean? The gospel's transformative. William Wilberforce ended slavery in his lifetime. The Christian community in America today would dismiss that man. We, we certainly would stand in opposition to, to, to Steve Larson preaching marriage in a library being paid by the government. And especially if, 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 if those in opposition stood up, that the churches would go, yeah, well, we're in agreement because there's a separation of church and state. Where is that, by the way? There's no separation of church and state. Let's keep the state out of the church, not the church out of the state. Emerson versus the Board of Education, 1947, tried to redefine the First Amendment. It wasn't freedom of religion. They just decided to say it was freedom from religion based on the Establishment Clause. Nobody stood in opposition, and the, and the pulpits didn't know what to do because they weren't educated. They'd given up. And since 1954 with the Johnson Amendment, churches don't want to lose their tax-exempt status. And we certainly don't want to tithe, let alone the church get engaged in something financial and lose our tax-exempt status. Paul didn't have tax-exempt status in Rome. He was a minority of a minority. He was a Christian Jew who was a minority in the Jewish world and a minority in the Roman world, and he turned that world right side up. 
And we're like, oh, there's just not enough of us, and we're all in trouble. And just, just stop it. Seriously. I'm sorry. I, I want to close with this thought. I wish I had written it, but I didn't. I'm not, I'm not near smart enough. Dr. Dan Hayden wrote this. And, and one of the reasons why I would never have been able to write it, because I watched The Hobbit, and it's just a series of movies that's thoroughly confusing to me. I'm like, yeah, a lot of things, creatures are dying, and I'm not sure why. And there's a ring. And I like the little guy, Gollum. My precious. I relate to him. No, I want to help you. No, I don't. I do. I don't. I don't. It's like the internal, uh, oh, uh, oh. Lord, I love you. No, I don't. <laughs> I get that guy. That's about it. But Dr. Dan Hayden put it in perspective for me, and I really love it. it all of a sudden, it jumped out. And, and J.R. Tolkien wrote, wrote The Hobbit during World War II when Nazi Germany was invading all of Europe. And he never said it was allegorical, but it's fascinating if you see it in this capacity. He wrote, he wrote Tolkien envisioned a new kind of enemy in his make-believe world when he created the orcs. Resembling humans, orcs were grotesque creatures with animalistic spirits and beastly hearts. Actually, there was nothing human about them. Out of the slime pits of Suriman, they came by the thousands, ready to devour everything like, loco- like a locust horde leaving nothing green in its wake. And with grunts and snarls, they obeyed their handlers with mindless obsession. Terror and destruction were their mantra of duty as they pursued their prey with relentless persistence. Not an ounce of reason could dissuade them from their program violence. And the only way to stop them was to kill them. He equates them with uh, Muslim radicals in the world, ISIS, ISIL. The only difference, he says, is that the Muslims aren't, they're, they're human. They can be persuaded and, and they have souls that need to be reached for the sake of Christ. But he goes on to write, he says, like Tolkien's hobbits, oh no, excuse me, he says, um, I lost my place here. It's really good, I just don't know where I am. Uh, oh, here it is. Like Tolkien's hobbits, God's people need to realize that it's time for courageous action. As perhaps the last generation of this age, it is essential that we bring the precious gospel to its divinely appointed destiny, embarking on a perilous journey with the fellowship of the ring. In the face of encroaching darkness and is infinitely better than hunkering down in the temporary safety of the Shire. These hobbits came from these lovely little homes and shires, and they just it was a neat community. It was just fun. It was all happy, and they had great warm hearths and and they're just fun. It was always peaceful, wasn't it? Do you remember that? I remember that. That was the part I liked. But he asks this question. He says, who exactly are the hobbits? He says, well, a hobbit is a human version of a rabbit possessing larger than normal ears, big thumpy feet. Hobbits live in mounded dwellings located in a place called the Shire and are about as innocent and vulnerable creatures as Tolkien could imagine. Just soft, sweet, tiny, <laughs> shirey peoples. Hobbits were simple folk who are not numbered among the world's elite. We're going to call this Calvary Chapel Hobbitville. Yet Tolkien dared to put the most precious possession of his imaginary world, the magical ring, into the safekeeping of these little powerless people who knew nothing about warfare or, or mighty deeds in battle. 
Frodo, Sam, Pippin, Mary were unlikely heroes, but they win our hearts through their courage, fortitude, endurance, and unbelievable daring. This too is what God has done by entrusting his precious gospel to common believers in Jesus Christ, who for the most part are simple people of love and faith. Sure, the church is known as great warriors like riders of Rohan, but most of us are just, well, hobbits. In the eyes of the skeptics and critics of the dark side, the Christian community appears vulnerable and unimpressive. In the final analysis, whether he intended it or not, Tolkien has challenged us to be as brave as the hobbits by embracing Christ's commission to embark on a dangerous journey that will lead us into the very heart of darkness. Surrounded by the rulers of darkness with massive armies of hatred and destructive orcs, we are encouraged by the Lord of light to gird up our loins for the journey in order to press beyond our fears. Most of all, it is not a time for self-preservation and indulgences and in the preferences of life in our little comfortable shires. So what if we're only hobbits? We too can accept self-sacrifice and unwavering devotion to the task of carrying the precious ring of the gospel through the darkness to its ultimate destiny, the all-consuming light. Then we too will rejoice with exceeding great joy at the return of the king and reclaim the earth for Christ's kingdom. Yeah, the day's December 7th, 2014, 73 years ago. Men and women died. So a nation of the people, by the people, and for the people wouldn't perish from the face of the earth. Supernatural power, they took on a two-fronted war. Brought a transformation of a nation that all of us today have enjoyed for over 60 years. If not longer, 73 now. And before you is a table a table represented by the greatest servant the world has ever known, like the men and women who died on December 7, 1941. To preserve the liberty and the freedom that you enjoy as you sit in the comfort of this room. And that was inspired by a servant that was long before them, who left the glory of heaven's throne. You want to talk about the beauty of a shire. You want to talk about a humble man. He was born into a carpenter's home. There was nothing in his appearance that would draw us to him. In the humility of a carpenter's home in abstract poverty, he lived on the earth for 33 years, was tempted in all ways, but was without sin. He wept, he bled, he cried, he hungered, he thirsted. He suffered in every way, shape, and form that you and I have suffered. He was a man acquainted with sorrow. No one in the history of the world has endured as much pain as he endured, especially in the Via Dolorosa prior to having him carry his cross up the Via Dolorosa, the way of pain, before they crucified him, putting the nails in his hands and his feet, and the crown of thorns on his head and the spear in his thigh. They whipped his back with a cat of nine tails, shards of metal, not unlike the iron and the bronze that we've read here in these kingdoms. As the Roman Empire unleashed its wrath upon the back of the Savior and bloodying him, With everything that was left in him, he carried that cross all the way up to, the, to Golgotha. Simon the Cyrenian helped carry that cross. He was a black man. He never asked for it, but he had to engage in it. Some of us don't ask for the trials we get in life, but we have to find ourselves hidden in the purposes of Christ. And there as they nailed him to the cross, 
And they lifted that cross. Everyone mocked him, spit upon him. They pulled his beard out of his face. Prior to that, they had tied his hands behind his back and put a cloth bag over his head. And they'd sucker punched him and said, prophesy who hit you. Mocking the prophecies that have been dictated in the scriptures. Because he was God with us. He was the word become flesh and dwelt with man. And the truth of that word, the light has entered in the world, but the world loves darkness more than light. And he takes a humble group of hobbits like you and me, and he says, I want you to know something. On the night that he was to be betrayed, he took a piece of bread. He said, this is my body. And when he took that bread, he knew that as he broke it, he was breaking his own body. He knew what awaited him because he was a God who knew the future. Because he holds the future in his hand. As that bread was broken, he could sense his body being broken. He says, this is my body broken for you. You see, the way that light enters in the world is greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. The world didn't need a king, didn't need a conqueror. The world needed a savior. We're blackened and darkened and immiserated by sin. It courses through our veins. Our blood is tainted. And we're guilty. And the Bible says blood must be shed for the remission of sin. So when Jesus broke that bread, he then turned and he held up the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the remission of your sins. And come reason, your sins are as scarlet, but I'll make you as white as snow. I'll put my righteousness on your account and I'll cast your sins as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. If you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, his body broken, his blood shed, is put on your account and you're saved to the glory of the Father. You humble little hobbits, the light of the Lord resides within your soul. You're empowered by the spirit of the living God to turn the darkness into light and to affect every mountain in the culture of our nation and our world. He didn't give you an understanding of the past and of the present and of the future so that you can be apathetic in your comfortable little shire. He says, love one another as I have loved you. You know how much he loved you and me? That much. Everything. And as they mocked him, and they spit upon him, his dying words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm going to love them all the way into the kingdom, and I'm going to go into the depths of darkness, and I'm going to deliver them from darkness unto light. And they'll know the truth, and the truth will set them free to be a part of my kingdom, to affect my purposes in a world that has fallen. Let the rock of Christ permeate every nook and cranny of this world. You are his arms and his legs as his have been pierced and nailed to the cross. Yours are free to move and to touch a world that desperately needs the light of the Lord. And as Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar and he said, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of all kings. Come to this table because Christ beckons you and receive everything he has for you and go out there and give it. It's a group of brave little hobbits that are going to change the world, empowered by the body and the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your spirit. Holy Spirit, as we come to this table, may it be a sanctified moment. 
that it wouldn't just be a cracker in a cup, but it'd be the body and blood of Christ, remembering so great a sacrifice. You've called us to go into all the world and make disciples of all men, into the depths of darkness to bring about your glorious light. Every mountain of influence will be touched by the power of the hobbits of Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you've given us a supernatural task, but you haven't left us as orphans. You've given us a supernatural power by you, Holy Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit to accomplish all that's necessary, for we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, and there isn't a weapon fashioned against us that will stand. The only thing that hinders us is our apathy and our justification of why we can remain in the shire instead of do the king's bidding. We long for the king's return, and I pray, Lord, that you would empower us as we come and receive, that we would go and give. In Jesus' name, amen.